Welcome to PeelPod's Just Environmental Law, debating environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Public Interest Environmental Law UK. Hello, it's Izzy. And Alex here. It's been a while since our last episode, as the Peel Committee, which produces the podcast, changes every year. But we're back with a new committee, new series and new branding. And in this series, we'll be bringing you one episode per month on current developments in the field of environmental law and justice. Which reminds me, the annual Peel UK conference is taking place from the 13th to the 14th of April this year online, and it's going to be great. The theme is After the Storm, Environmental Law in 2021 and Beyond. And we'll be taking stock of what a huge year it's been for environmental law and what the future holds. With speakers including Fahani Amin, Thamali Kodakara, Julian Ajiman, Gita Parihar, among many others. Tickets are available on a voluntary contribution basis on Eventbrite. Just check out our Twitter at PeelUK underscore for the link. So one of the things we've wanted to do in this second series of PeelPod is to discuss environmental issues in a more interdisciplinary way, looking at how they interact with other areas, as well as hearing about inspiring activism and campaigning in the field. In the first episode of this series, we are looking at climate assemblies, what they are, how they work, and how they can contribute to better policy and legislation. Our guest today is Dom Ward, a Senior Project Officer at INVOLVE. INVOLVE is the UK's leading public participation charity with a mission to make decision-making in the UK more open, participative and deliberative. INVOLVE has worked with governments, parliaments and civil society organisations to create and deliver new forms of public participation in democratic decision-making. In the last couple of years alone, INVOLVE has worked on the Camden Climate Assembly, Kingston Citizens Assembly on Air Quality and, of course, Climate Assembly UK, which we will go on to talk a bit more about later. Thank you so much for joining us today and we're really excited to have you on the podcast with us. Thank you for having me. So this episode is called Can Climate Assemblies Change the Conversation? And so I think the best place to start is actually a bit of a discussion about what are citizens' assemblies and what are climate assemblies? What do we mean by those terms? A citizens' assembly is essentially a group of people that are brought together to discuss an issue or issues and reach a conclusion about what they think should happen. People who take part are chosen so they reflect the wider population. It's usually in terms of demographics like age, gender, ethnicity and social class, and sometimes relevant attitudes preference for small or large state or maybe uh, attitudes to how what to do about climate crisis or level of concern about climate crisis. Citizen assemblies are designed to give members of the public time to learn and discuss a topic, usually over a number of weekends, and then they go through that process before reaching conclusions. Assembly members are usually asked to make trade-offs and arrive at workable solutions and workable recommendations. The three key stages of a citizen assembly are usually uh, learning, deliberation, and then the uh, recommendation stage. So learning, you hear from experts, you have a chance to quiz them, do Q&As, and then deliberation stage, you're given time to kind of absorb the information and discuss it in small groups, uh, usually around seven or eight people, hear about their views as well, and you, the sort of deliberate is to, to weigh up there and to develop your own views on it. And then the third and final phase is that decision-making. Participants are come to some conclusions on what they've learned through the assembly process. Obviously, people don't always agree. And it is really important that citizens' assemblies don't manufacture a false sense of consensus. What that does mean is that alongside agreed positions where people have 
generally gone. Yeah, we like that as an idea. Individual voting can be used to collect the views of all participants as well. So no one's feeling like they've been forced into a corner or anything like that. And yeah, it ensures that minority voices are heard as well as the majority. I just wanted to pick up on something you said there about how they are representative. Could you just talk a little bit about how that's done? Yeah, so um, what is a common method for a citizen assembly is using this process called uh, sortition, which is best understood as a, a kind of civic lottery where thousands of invites might be sent out to households across the country. So once people have said that they're interested, then from that group, you're selecting a sample. So it could be 50 people, it could be 70 people, it could be 100 people, depending on a number of factors, who are then reflective of the population um, that you're selecting from. So I talked about those demographics of age, gender, ethnicity, social class. Um, you could use education background as well, but it is to try and make sure that there is, a, you're, you're coming capturing a breadth of voices and uh, people coming from different backgrounds, having different views um, and making sure that there is opportunity to hear from people you wouldn't otherwise necessarily hear from, which from my anecdotal experience always happens. People always come away saying they would have never thought they'd meet someone from a Scottish Highlands because they live in West Sussex or something like that. It ensures that people do get to encounter people they wouldn't otherwise meet and you do get that reflective sample of the population. Are people incentivized into coming at all? Yes. Uh, so I can't speak for everyone that runs deliberative processes, but uh, certainly anything that involved do. We do tend to offer incentives. We call them thank you gifts. And essentially either the thought behind that is people are putting in time and effort and we we need to value that as well. It's People are putting in work and that should be kind of recognised. Uh, we do also uh, cover people's travel expenses, hotel expenses, all that sort of stuff. Part of the thinking behind thank you gifts as well is to make sure that you don't privilege people who can afford to maybe take the time off work versus those who can't. Or because usually it's on weekends, some people will be working shift works over the weekend and they need to be able to afford to not do that work or miss those shifts or something like that. Is to try and uh, create as much of a level, level playing field uh, so that the people who are coming along are genuinely reflective of the population and not just people who can afford to take time off. Well, it seems like it's a very well thought out process and you've outlined some of the key features there. But what are the reasons for using citizen assemblies and what benefits might one get from doing so? So it's a good question and uh, it's a conversation you know, have with people in parliaments, governments, local authorities, devolved governments, all, all the time. You know, what, what's the benefit, really, of a citizen assembly? And it might start there because citizen assemblies are perhaps the most high-profile process of deliberative engagement. But they are just one method that can be used to help mem- members of the public have their say on issues which affect their lives. And that, that's the key reason that you do this sort of thing, is to help members of the public have a say on decisions which affect their lives. So you could use all types of different methods for different sorts of questions. But in terms of citizens' assemblies, they're often best used for things like examining broad policy objectives or horizon scanning to create new ideas and propose solutions, assessing policy options to develop recommendations, and thirdly, gaining insight from the public about the efficacy of existing practice. So that means that citizen assemblies can be really helpful in things like tackling the climate crisis 
because it allows people to have a say on broad overarching questions. So for example, the UK's path to net zero, what should that look like? I know we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the Climate Assembly later on, but that's a very good example. The purpose, like I said before, is to help members of the public inform decision-making on key issues. That is a good time probably for us to move on to our discussion of Climate Assembly UK. You mentioned that the question that that Climate Assembly was looking at was how we get to net zero by 2050. How was it sort of set up and structured and how did Involve facilitate it? So in 2019, which feels like such a long time ago now, um, a year of pandemic on, it feels like a decade ago, but yeah, it was only two years ago. Parliament passed a law which committed the UK to reach that target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So in order to understand public preferences, question of what path the UK should take there, six select committees in the House of Commons commissioned the Climate Assembly to be run. They put out open tender and we were lucky enough to win that bid. So then when it came to delivering it, I think we sent out 30,000 letters randomly to selected households across the UK, asking people to say if they're interested in being involved. And from that, had 108 members of the public who were selected as a representative sample, touched on the demographics that those were representing earlier. So we had age, gender, ethnicity, educational level, where in the UK they live, because obviously this is a national question, um, whether they live in an urban or rural area. And uh, lastly, their level of concern about climate change, uh, because uh, we wanted to make sure that we, again, were hearing from a a real diversity of voices there. You you don't want to just hear people who all agree with each other. In terms of how we run the Climate Assembly, the Assembly members met in a hotel in Birmingham uh, across six weekends. Well, originally planned to be four weekends. Uh, the first three week- weekends took place face-to-face uh, between late January and early March 2020. And then, as you remember, the uh, pandemic hit then. And so the fourth uh, and final weekend was moved online. And we then split that weekend over three weekends in April and May. The reason for doing that was usually a weekend uh, that's face to face. We we do quite a lot of hours, and it, you know it's hard work for people uh, having to take on really complex information and give it a lot of thought and have really kind of insightful conversations. And it, I mean, it's is work that people are doing as well. Asking people to do that on Zoom for you know seven eight hours or something in a day felt like a big ask, especially as even though it's maybe strange to think about it now, there were lots and lots of people who weren't familiar with using Zoom or Teams or whatever, any kind of video conferencing platform. The Assembly did cover quite a lot. There were eight topics which it covered. So that was how we travel on land, how we travel by air, heat and energy use in the home, what we eat and how we use the land, what we buy, where our electricity comes from, greenhouse gas removals and COVID-19 recovery and how that relates to the path to net zero. Uh, That was added in obviously after the pandemic hit because suddenly it was quite clear that it was an important thing to be discussing. We also looked at the underpinning principles for the path to net zero and any additional recommendations assembly members wanted to make to parliament and government. Maybe you can speak to this a bit from your role as facilitator. You would think that having people that have 
potentially really opposing views on climate change and what they think of it at the table must generate some quite heated discussions at times. How do you manage that? So anecdotally, I don't remember things ever getting heated beyond the point of productive, really. You know, of course, people are passionate and the more people hear about and discuss an issue, the more invested they can get. But in terms of it needing kind of managing to make sure things didn't bubble over, there was never, in my experience, there wasn't any risk of that, which is in large part down to a couple of different things. Firstly, it's a credit to the assembly members who really kind of took on the task and they took it quite seriously and they really engaged with the topic and really listened to what the questions being asked them were and, like I said, took that very seriously. The second is early on, right at the start of the first weekend, collectively the assembly agreed on just sort of conversation guidelines uh, that mostly focused around being respectful to each other and engaging with topics and sort of actively listening. So that I think really helps set the set the tone for how how people are all expecting each other to behave. My role there was a table facilitator, uh, so there'd be one one of us at each table of seven to eight assembly members, and table facilitator was basically there to help guide people through the process. You know, it's and it's your know, part of your role as well is to make sure that all voices are kind of heard equally. But as people uh, really kind of go through that experience. I think it's a credit to the assembly members that I, I never felt as a as a facilitator that there was too much risk of that. You know, people of course have important points to make and they want to be heard, but it was, in my experience, always done in a very kind of respectful and an honest way. I think there's a fear that you know things can just uh, go go all over the place. But in my experience, uh, people come away at surprised at how smoothly those processes run. Uh, because people want conversations to be productive and people are more capable of productive conversations than are maybe always given credit for. Do you think that having those discussions actually helps to create some kind of agreement and that people are actually sort of changing their positions when they're having the discussions and learning from each other? So there's people can change their, their positions and people can also not. We don't ever predict that people will change their views or not but it's what we do really focus on is that element of listening i think it sets up a really nice atmosphere that makes it quite easy to listen you know when when you're in a room and everyone else is really actively listening and listening to the point where you say something and i'm then responding to what you say not just waiting for my turn to say my point that culture is i think is kind of infectious really it touches on that theme of people treating each other really respectfully. So yeah, I think there's there's definitely an opportunity for people to hear a huge range of views that they they wouldn't otherwise. And there's a lot of value in that. I think that's part of the magic really is you, you get to talk to people you never speak to and you get to take the time. And the time is really, really important. You can't rush it. The time to listen and to really start to try and understand where it is they're coming from. And, you know, that, that might change your views. It might not, but it's, it's likely that you'll at least come away from having understood a little bit more. And that level of understanding is valuable. I think. Moving on to what the Assembly found, one of the conclusions that I thought was really interesting was that they were very supportive of 
wider public education and engagement on um, net zero and climate change. They really valued the education element of the process and wanted the wider public to benefit from that. What was kind of your reaction to that finding? And were there any other findings that you thought were particularly interesting? Yeah, so I, I think that, it, that was a really, um, a really noteworthy outcome. I mean, the, the report is over 500 pages. Um, and I, I know a huge amount of work went into bringing that all together from all sorts of people. Um, and in that, there's over 50 recommendations. So, so I won't go breaking down each recommendation, but I definitely encourage people to go and have a look if they're interested. Um, it's, it is genuinely interesting reading. But uh, like you said, one of the key themes was um, that was running through through the uh, outputs was the, that, that kind of public engagement and um, members did feel privileged to have access to the information that they had. Um, they were hearing from uh, expert speakers. Uh, so having that level of access to information that they maybe wouldn't have done otherwise did feel special and important. And there was a strong theme of members uh, wanting others to have that information as well in order to make uh, informed decisions. So they were calling for uh, ongoing engagement and decision making. Uh, and you know, I, I think you can see some of the, the impact and how that's maybe uh, changed the conversation a little bit. Uh, where So the Committee on Climate Change recently released their sixth carbon budget, and it was using the assembly results to really influence what they recommended on climate change itself. So that, that's kind of climate focused, but in terms of public engagement as well, the fifth carbon budget hadn't mentioned engagement, whereas the sixth one had. So I think you kind of see the impact of both on the policy side and the public engagement side, where it is starting to become really embedded into what's expected and what is helpful. I know involved has done work with other local climate assemblies. What did these entail and what distinguished them with Climate Assembly UK? Yes, yeah, so we have worked on a number of different citizen assemblies. Uh, some are focused on issues of climate change, some are on other issues. So, for example, we've helped in running citizen assemblies on hate crime, for example, or on redevelopment of town centres, a number of different issues. So then citizen assemblies aren't exclusive to focusing on climate crisis. But you, you mentioned a couple of local examples where local councils have commissioned climate assemblies specifically. One particular example is Camden Climate Assembly that happened a couple of years ago that we were working on. And the question for that is the first kind of key difference from the Climate Assembly UK versus the Camden Climate Assembly. So Climate Assembly UK was you know, the path to net zero by 2050 that the UK should be taking. Now, obviously, Camden's remit is Camden, not the whole UK. And so the question they are asking we are now facing a climate and ecological crisis. How can the council and the people of Camden help limit the impact of climate change while protecting and enhancing our natural environment? What do we need to do in our homes, neighbourhoods, council and country? So obviously it's, it is a quite a different question to the Climate Assembly. So in Camden, they were asked to develop a series of actions, each scale, so home, neighbourhood and council, that can be progressed by the necessary stakeholders the outcomes of that were in, it was October 9, 2019, the actions were presented to a full council meeting and received unanimous support from councillors from all political parties, which is a really, really great outcome. 
So I use that example just to draw the comparison of local climate assemblies versus climate assembly UK. The first key difference really is about scope and the, the question that you're being asked. Of course, six parliamentary committees that commission the climate assembly have a wider scope than local councils, but you know, there's, there's, it just means you're asking a slightly different question. So you can take different actions in response because that is a really key theme of what makes an effective deliberative process really is that it can have an impact and feed into decisions that are being made. It's, you know, it's no good for public trust necessarily if you do this whole series of engagement and then it doesn't inform anything. It's got to, it's got to be able to show some impact. So what's been really, really encouraging about the Climate Assembly, for example, is the impact that it's had on, for example, Committee on Climate Change. Sixth carbon budget is a really, really big deal. There's also, you know, we've had a lot of positive political reaction from it to it. So back in November, it was the report was presented in the House of Commons and a number of different MPs were speaking really positively about it. Committees have launched overarching inquiry into the impact the Assembly is having on government as well. And I think as well, the Labour front bench has publicly supported deliberative democracy. Uh, so you, you start to see how that's having a kind of wider impact. You mentioned that, you know, it's really important for the legitimacy of the Assembly as well, I think, from the outset, its outcomes and what it's feeding into to be clear. To the, to the participants. How do you determine the significance of that output? Because deliberative democracy can't be a replacement for representative democracy. How do you balance those two competing elements? Yeah, it's a familiar question. I, I actually, I mentioned the, the House of Commons debating or looking at the report from the Climate Assembly towards the end of last year. And I wish I could remember which MP it was, but I saw an MP being quoted as saying, that they'd kind of been a bit suspicious at first and thought, well, is this looking to, to kind of replace representative democracy? And no, it's, it's not. It's about strengthening representative democracy. It's about making sure decision makers have the best possible information available to them when making decisions. It's not looking to supplant anything. It's just about strengthening it, really. Alex and I were talking about the French Climate Assembly the other day. Macron, after or I think before the assembly was set up, had committed to putting their conclusions into action by legislation in some way. Do you think that's a good or a bad thing? Or do you think that really the conclusion should be something that's debated by parliament and then they decide whether they want to take further action on them? Or do you think that parliaments or the government even should make stronger commitments about taking action on the basis of an assembly's conclusions before they've made them? It's a very, very good question. And I think it's the answer is on a bit of a sliding scale, really. It does really depend on what is being asked of people. You could argue that it's actually it's a, it's a bit unreasonable to ask people to make decisions on really important issues where they're, they learn a lot about it during a deliberative process like a citizens' assembly, but they do have limited time, whereas a politician who's a decision maker or someone working in the civil service or something like that has much more time. So you could argue that there's kind of downsides to saying right now, people who usually make the decisions, they don't make them anymore, and now it's you. That's a lot of pressure for someone to take on or for people to take on. You could also argue you know, there's a strong kind of case for making sure that the recommendations that come out of the deliberative process are enacted upon. Now, 
in the case of the climate assembly which is probably what well, is definitely the most high profile example in the uk we made recommendations to inform policymakers, and those recommendations have been received really really positively i think that's a, a good example of how things can be done right i can't speak too strongly about the french climate assembly to be honest but i do think that the way that the climate assembly uk has been designed has actually allowed the outputs to have real impact and uh, be received in a really positive way by decision makers as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. There's almost a sense in which they can break a political stalemate if the government is tentative about taking action in a particular area because they're scared that the public might have a bad reaction to it. They can almost be a way of testing the water, seeing that actually the public may have different opinions to what the government thought they would and it being a way to actually make political progress in that sense. Yeah, potentially. I think that a common example used of that might be the the Irish Citizens Assembly, which was one of the first to get real major attention. Now, that was on a number of different issues that they covered, but one of the most high profile issue that was covered in that was whether to the the framing of what sort of laid the ground for the referendum on repealing the Eighth um, Amendment on abortion, which then did happen. So I think that that might be an example really of where there was potentially a political stalemate. Again, I'm not an expert on Irish politics either, so I'd be willing for someone to step in and say, no, you're wrong about that, actually. But as I understand it, that was been an issue that was a bit stuck for quite a long time, and it, it helped unlock that entrenched issue. But as well, I, I wouldn't. It, that's not necessarily the case for all deliberative processes. It's, it's not just getting policymakers out of problems that they can't get out of necessarily, because deliberative processes aren't just a, a problem fix, but also part of a healthy democracy. So decision-making processes that are running well would have deliberative processes attached sometimes as well, rather than just to solve problems. I feel like it's worth giving any decision-makers some credit as well. for you know, They're not just using deliberative processes to solve problems, but also just to decisions in a sort of well-informed way. Going in a little bit of a different direction now, I'm going to ask you a slightly provocative question, but maybe something that listeners might be thinking about. Can we really trust the public to understand the seriousness of the climate crisis in the case of the Climate Assembly, but also the issues they're being asked to deliberate upon? And shouldn't we just really be led by experts or scientists who really know what they're talking about in these areas? So in a short answer, yes, we can trust people to grasp the issues that they're learning about. Anecdotally, I've always been really, really impressed with the level of detail and seriousness with which people engage with the information that's presented to them. But really what this is about, it's not a question of is it about listening to people or listening to scientists. This is about understanding what public preferences are. We aren't doing that with any expectation that there's any particular answer to it. So on the basis that we've of what we've done so far, we've found people have engaged really, really positively. And again, climate assembly example, there were climate skeptics who really positively engaged in, in the question of how the UK is going to reach its climate target. And that was because they knew that their lives would be significantly impacted upon by the answer as well and by that path that's taken. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a choice of either or, but it's about gathering best information and that, uh, that empowers decision makers to decide based on the most information they can gather. And that's what it's about, rather than sort of pitting 
public versus science or anything like that. It's sort of bringing those together and getting an understanding of what public views on that is to inform decision making. And it's really interesting what you said about the public really taking their duties seriously when they participate. Because again, one of the things that struck me about the press around the Climate Assembly was that there have been so many interviews with people that took part who have really said it was transformational for them. I think in the report, a lot of the majority of members said that now they're more encouraged to take part in other forms of decision making. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about your experience of that and how the participants are changed by taking part in these processes. Yeah, yeah. So um, we we are still waiting on the independent evaluation findings. You know, it, for good reason, it takes a long time to work through that and to do it kind of thoroughly. But anecdotally, I have heard of assembly members who kind of had their lives changed in some way or other. So I think there was one I was told that became a parish councillor after their experience in the climate assembly. Someone got an electric car. There was someone who I think was working for British Gas and retrained within British Gas to then be trained to fit electric car charging points as well. And um, I think someone then set up a secondhand fashion business. And uh, I think there was someone else who went pescatarian as well. So yeah, you're right. There, there are there are various really nice instances of people saying, yeah, you know, my experience in climate assembly impacted my life in one way or another. And from my perspective as an individual who was lucky enough to be involved as one of the facilitators, that's really heartening as well to see how see further evidence of how in depth and engaged with what uh, they were doing there and how seriously people took it. So yeah, that, those are some really nice examples of the impact that I think it's had on people's lives. Dom, what does the future look like for citizens' assemblies? I think there'll be more. Uh, I think there's there's what's sort of described as a deliberative wave um, of an increasing number of deliberative processes happening, whether that's citizens' assemblies, citizens' juries, panels, whatever. There's there's lots and lots of different methods. It's, it's important to stress that citizens' assemblies are the most probably well-known at the moment and are having a great impact on a whole range of different policy areas and are really helping inform decision-making at local level, devolved government level and national government level, parliaments, all sorts of stuff, are having a huge, hugely positive impact. Yeah, I do think there'll be um, continuation and embedding of uh, deliberative processes in decision making because really it, it, it provides best information for decision makers to then act on. It, it's right that people should have a say on decisions that affect their lives. And yeah, so I, so I, can, I can see them continuing to grow and be more common and not just citizen assemblies, but whole range of different methods. So citizen assemblies aren't necessarily the right for every different question. You might, if you were, if you're looking at something, a question in a particular area, you might want to go there or you wanted to talk to people who had a particular specific lived experience of that issue, then instead of using sortition to get a representative sample of the whole country, you might want to particularly speak to people who've got lived experience. So if you were looking at something that was an issue affecting coastal towns, rather than talking to people who live in uh, landlocked cities, you might want to talk to people who live in coastal towns. There's So a lot of it's common sense stuff. But yes, I think there will be, there'll be more citizen assemblies in the future and there'll be more deliberative processes more widely as well. Dom, thank you so much for joining us for a really interesting conversation and it's been a really fascinating insight into 
how deliberative processes can play a role in environmental decision making as we understand it in the more traditional legal sense as lawyers and law students so really interesting thank you again and thanks for listening you've been listening to peel pod thanks to anastasia for editing this episode and cuba for the excellent music check him out on spotify he's brilliant the url is in our podcast description Follow us on Twitter at Peel UK or visit our website www.peel.org.uk and if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe.